if you're online, you hopefully printed it out when it's emailed out tonight. Um, so you have obviously the content that we're going to go through tonight on page one and two on the front and back. And then the verses that we'll be looking at, the scripture verses, are going to be on pages three and four. So that should be virtually all of them there is on pages three and four. And then, uh, on, oh, three, four, and five. Sorry, it kind of leaked onto the fifth page there. I normally try to keep it just two pages, two front and back pages. And then on the very, very back of your packet, you should have a list of all of the kings of Israel and Judah. Now, the reason that I want to point that out is because it's really handy to, uh, you're good. It's okay. I don't have to see that, by the way. I don't have to see them as long as they can see me. If you're online, can you see me? Just let me know. Somebody say yes or no. Okay, good. All right, good deal. Um, so I can't see y'all, so don't raise your hand. Just sort of open your mic and say, I got a question, uh, if you got one. So Anyway, uh, on the very back of your packet is a list of the kings, Israel on the left-hand side and Judah on the right-hand side. And I just want to refresh your memory that, remember, Israel was once a united kingdom under David and Solomon. And then it was so because due to Solomon's sins and, and subsequent sins of his kids, the kingdom was divided and God told him that the kingdom would be divided under, under his sons. And so the kingdom is now divided. Ten tribes in the north, we're going to call them Israel, because that's normally what the Bible calls them. The ten tribes in the north, which is Israel. The two tribes in the south, Judah and Benjamin, are really just called Judah. And the southern kingdom is going to be pretty much the only legitimate kingdom. That's the one that follows the line of David. That's the one that will ultimately lead to Christ in Matthew, we see in his genealogy. But that, that's going to be the main genealogy that we're really concerned about is the is Judah's kingdom. Israel is more or less an illegitimate kingdom, and they're identified as such in the Bible. And so that illegitimate kingdom in the north is notoriously idolatrous. They're going to follow after all kinds of foreign gods and one right after the other. And so we're going to track the book of First and Second Kings, as well as First and Second Chronicles, is going to track those two kingdoms, the north and the south, Israel in the north and Judah in the south. Then in the middle two columns, we're going to fill that out as we go, but we're going to look at the prophets and where they were sent to. So uh, we're going to uncover through, through Second Kings now and also working with Second Chronicles, we're going to look at the prophets as they come into the kingdom and interact with the kings. So one of the things that we're seeing now as the kings run off into idolatry is that God doesn't just let them wander off. He actually sends them prophets to tell them they're wandering off. Now, many times they don't listen. Occasionally they do listen. But what we see is they just continue to wander off and God continues to go after them with his, with his prophets. And so all of the rest of the Old Testament, as we go through First and Second Kings, the prophets that are are coming, we're going to kind of jump into the various books of the prophets as we come upon them and their time period in, um, in the, the first and second Kings or in second Kings. So that's kind of be how the it flows anyway. So if you can just track with that, but all of that is on your back on the back there. And I'm going to leave that on the back, every packet I give you, and we'll just continue to fill out the prophets as we go. I extended Elijah's ministry from Ahab through Ahaziah, which is where Elijah is going to be taken up into heaven. And we're going to get right up to that tonight, hopefully. Um, so remember the last time we were together, does this work? Can I get, can I go? Nope. Click on keynote. Nope. It's on. Good. Yeah, it's on. I just can't advance the slide. Oh. Can you click on, click on the keynote? It's good. It's all good. No worries. Yeah. Go up to the slide right in the middle of it and just click on it. Any of them? There you go. Perfect. So remember, Ahab, the last time we were together, Ahab is the, the king of Israel. He is dejected. He's sad because he had gone to a neighbor of the palace, Naboth, 
who had this beautiful vineyard, and he had said to Naboth, hey, would you please sell me your vineyard or just tell me and I'll give you another piece of property if I can have your property. Well, Naboth refused as we uncovered last time we were together, which was two weeks ago, as we uncovered, the reason that Naboth says no is because the land doesn't belong to an Israelite, right? That's the way Israelites understand their view of property. The whole land belongs to God. They have no right to give that or to sell that to anybody else, except in the most, in, in cases where they're the most destitute. And that's the only way they can live is they can sell it, get money from it. The person who buys it can use it and reap the benefits for it. And then in the year of Jubilee, the land would be given back to the person who sold it because that is God's. God owns the property. He has given it to that family and it passes through that family. And so Naboth said no, and Ahab is sad about that. Well, when Jezebel, his wife, sees that he's sad, she says, why are you sad? And he says, well, because Naboth wouldn't sell me his vineyard. And so she says, you're the king. You just take it. And so she arranges this kind of cockamamie solution where she goes and takes his property. And so when she takes his property, uh, that makes the Lord very upset. And so God sends Elijah uh, to uh, meet Ahab and tell him what is going to happen because he has done this sin. He's going to bring about the death of Ahab's kingdom in the life of his son. I want you to hear that and think about that for just a second, because what we're going to talk about tonight is pretty important when it comes to that. He is going to take away Ahab's kingdom in the life of his son. All right. And so uh, Ahab dies there in because he decides, you know what? Ah, come on back. There we go. Uh, Ahab is decides, you know, he, he's reached the pinnacle of prosperity and he has decided, I think, uh, and Assyria is no longer a threat to him right now. And so he decides, since Assyria is not a threat, I don't have a threat from the outside. I want to go get one of our territories back from Syria, not Assyria, but Syria. I want to go get back one of our properties, Ramoth Gilead, from Syria. And Ben-Hadad is the person who he's going to go get that back from. And Ben-Hadad was a at once an ally of, of his, but he realizes he doesn't need that ally anymore. And instead, he makes an alliance with the southern kingdom of Judah, which we're going to talk about tonight. Because in the south, Jehoshaphat is more or less a righteous guy. Uh, Jehoshaphat is more or less a, a righteous guy. He's, he's pretty good. And Ahab is, as we've seen, morally depraved, absolutely and totally a rubbish. And he goes to the southern kingdom and he says, hey, Jehoshaphat, I want to go get Ramoth Gilead back for our people. It belongs to us. And Jehoshaphat agrees. And they go to battle with Ben-Hadad. And in the battle, Ahab is mortally wounded. He is shot through the breastplate or between the, where the, his armor meets. He is shot through and he's propped up by his chariot until the evening when he eventually gives up the ghost and he dies, his, blood, his body is carried back, and his blood is licked up by dogs, which fulfills the prophecy of Elijah when he came to him originally for taking Naboth's vineyard. So with all that being said, we look at the events of tonight, and what we're going to do is instead of looking at the northern kingdom with Ahab, Ahab has died, we're going to shift our gaze, and we're going to look at the south. Now just before we go there, look on the back just very quickly I want you to see what uh, so, some a couple of things. Look at Ahab on the back on the left-hand side. He's, I don't know, six or seven down. It says his reign started in 874 and went to 853. Look at across from him, Jehoshaphat. His reign starts in 873 and goes to 848. So his reign starts a year after Ahab and extends another, what is that, five years after Ahab dies. Okay, now that's important because technically what we're doing by looking at the south now and Jehoshaphat is kind of jumping back in time just a little bit. But you're going to see 
some of the similar events from the southern perspective and what happened with Jehoshaphat. But guess what? You don't get that story in 1 Kings. You have to go to Chronicles to get that story, which is sort of, you know, weird. Hey, it's okay. It is what it is. But if you don't read the whole Bible, well, then you're going to be lost in some parts. Okay. So, um, so parallel, where am I at? Let's see if I can get it up here. Here we go. Uh, it may just be delayed. I don't know. Can you click it and advance it to the next slide? There we go. All right. Parallel to the reign of Ahab, we have Jehoshaphat's reign in Judah, which in contrast to Ahab's reign, Jehoshaphat's reign is pleasantly uneventful. Right? Um, from the very beginning, he is attempting, because he realizes the... Uh, evil in the north, he starts to fortify Judah against the enemy of the north, which is Israel. And just like his father Asa, remember we talked about Asa probably a couple of weeks ago or a few weeks ago, Asa was pretty righteous. He, he brought about some moral reform and started getting rid of some of the high places and some of the pagan worship in the southern kingdom. And so surprisingly, as far as the kings of Israel go, the son actually more or less followed in his father's footsteps and did something of the same thing. So he tried to rid the land of idolatry and get those things out. So let's look at Second Chronicles 17, 1 to 6, where we pick up Jehoshaphat's part of the story. Jehoshaphat, his son, that's the son of Asa, reigned in his place and strengthened himself against Israel. He placed forces in all the fortified cities of Judah and set garrisons in the land of Judah and in the cities of Ephraim that Asa, his father, had captured. The Lord was with Jehoshaphat because he walked in the earlier ways of his father David. He did not seek the Baals or the Baals, but sought the God of his father and walked in his commandments and not according to the practices of Israel. Therefore, the Lord established the kingdom in his hand, and all Judah brought tribute to Jehoshaphat, and he had great riches and honor. His heart was courageous in the ways of the Lord, and furthermore, he took the high places and the Asherim out of Judah. Now, remember what the high places are, are basically very literally places that are in a, in a high spot, uh, buildings, uh, temples that are built in a, on a hill or in a high place. And those are designed for pagan worship. And so when they, when the Kings are always evaluated in the text of second, first and second Kings and really Chronicles as well for having torn down the high places or having left them up. If they left them up, they didn't tear down the high places, then they're condemned. If they did tear down the high places, then they're, uh, I guess you'd say promoted or, uh, whatever. Um, thought of as, as, as good. So uh, Jehoshaphat is, is pretty with it, right? He's, a, he's a, a pretty good king. And it's not because Judah's so good that they deserve a good king by no means. It's, as we've seen with Asa and now with Jehoshaphat, it's God's grace that he is giving to them a, 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 a gracious king, a, a king that seeks after God and that follows after David. Now, for all his righteous deeds, go to the next slide there. I'll just give up on advancing it myself. For all his righteous deeds, Jehoshaphat still made an alliance with Ahab. So remember this whole scene where Ahab is ready to go after Ben-Hadad. Just back up for just a second. Remember what happened. Ben-Hadad comes in to try to conquer Israel. He's from Syria, which is just north of Israel. He comes in, tries to conquer Israel, Ahab's not having it, and Ahab fights back, and the Lord gives Ahab the victory, and, 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 and he defeats Ben-Hadad. But remember what Ahab does to Ben-Hadad. Instead of killing Ben-Hadad, which he should have done, he let Ben-Hadad live and instead makes a treaty or a contract with him where he can go into Syria, Damascus, and sell products and make money in Damascus. And so Damascus becomes the servant, as it were, of Israel, which is a reversal of what was happening before then. And so now Damascus, or Syria, is the servant of Israel, and, 
Ahab did this very sinfully. Well, remember in, now that, that Assyria had marched in to Israel to try to do battle. And it seems that what we learned last time was that Ahab made a, a treaty with Ben-Hadad in order to keep Assyria out. And so they had a treaty together that they would do battle with Assyria. Well, now that Assyria has been beaten in that battle, and they've kind of like a whipped dog kind of go back, licking their wounds back to Assyria, Ahab sees now no benefit to this treaty. And so he's ready to break the treaty because Damascus, or Syria, has one place in particular that Ahab really wants, and that is Ramoth-Gilead. It's a city that, that Damascus had captured and for themselves. And he wants that territory back. It originally belonged to Israel. So remember, Ahab's worthless. He's a, he's a sinner. Jehoshaphat, he's righteous. But Ahab goes to Judah and says, I think we need to get Ramoth Gilead back. And Jehoshaphat, who is a righteous king, agrees to it. Big no-no, right? He agrees to it to take Ramoth Gilead back. And he's initially suspicious. Remember what happened last time when we saw from Ahab's perspective. Ahab goes to get his prophets and they all tell him, go to Ramoth Gilead, you're going to win, which was not true. They were going to lose in Ramoth Gilead. But all the false prophets say, go to Ramoth Gilead, do it. And then somebody comes along and tells, tells Ahab, you should go get the voice of somebody else to just make sure. Let's get a prophet from the Lord to just see. Is there anybody and Ahab says, well, yeah, there's this guy, Micah, but I don't like him because he never tells me what I want to hear. And, and the, whoever this was says, well, maybe you should just go ask him anyway, and let's just see what he says. And sure enough, Micah comes in. He's told, say what the king has, wants you to say. Tell him what he wants to hear. And Micah's like, okay. And so the first report that Micah gives him is this very sarcastic, very tongue-in-cheek report that says, oh, yeah, you're going to win. You're going to be fine. And, and Ahab, go, Ahab sees right through it, knows that it's sarcasm, and says, how many times I got to tell you, I, I want you to tell me the truth. And so Micah says, all right, here's the truth. I saw the throne room of the Lord, and I saw his counsel standing before him. And the Lord is going to let you go into Ramoth Gilead. And he's going to do so because there's a lying spirit that's gone out from the counsel of the Lord that has gone into the mouth of these prophets and has told you exactly what you want to hear. And you're going to go in there and you're going to lose. And it's going to bring about your death, right? So the person that told him to go get a prophet of the Lord is Jehoshaphat, right? He is righteous and he's upright. And so he sees the value in the prophets of the Lord. Why he still goes along with Ahab? I haven't the foggiest of clues other than sin makes you do Weird things, things that are illogical sometimes. But let's read about it in Second Chronicles 18, 28 to 34. He says this. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, went up to Ramoth Gilead. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, I will disguise myself and go into battle, but you wear your robes. And the king of Israel disguised himself and they went into battle. Now the king of Syria had commanded the captains of his chariots, fight with neither small nor great, but only with the king of Israel. As soon as the captains of the chariots saw Jehoshaphat, they said, it is the king of Israel. And so they turned to fight against him. And Jehoshaphat cried out and the Lord helped him. God drew, God drew, uh, drew them away from him. For as soon as the captains of the chariots saw that it was not the king of Israel, they turned back from pursuing him. But a certain man drew his bow at, a, at random and struck the king of Israel between the scale armor and the breastplate. Therefore, he said to the driver of his chariot, turn around and carry me out of battle, for I am wounded. And the battle continued that day, and the king of Israel was propped up in his chariot facing the Syrians until evening. Then at sunset, he died. So Jehoshaphat is in the battle with Ahab and he decides, well, I, obviously, he's there sinfully. The people, uh, the, the Syrians, are told, you don't fight any Israelite. You go straight for Ahab. 
right? Ahab's the one that reneged on the contract that he had drawn up with Ben-Hadad, and Ben-Hadad wants blood. And so he says, don't go anywhere, go right after Ahab. I want you to kill him, all right? Well, in the battle, they think Jehoshaphat is Ahab, and so they go after Jehoshaphat. And this is the point where Jehoshaphat realizes, oh no, what have I done? I've gotten myself into a battle. He flees away, he cries out, and even in his sin, the Lord reaches down and saves him, all right? Confuses the enemy, draws them away, They end up killing Ahab, not Jehoshaphat, and the rest, as they say, is history. Now, one thing that I know about the Lord is he doesn't just let people get away with their sin, especially his children. He goes after them. Now, ultimately, he won't let anyone get away with their sin. That's what judgment is for. But sometimes people escape here and there along the way. And after all, I mean, even Hitler had great success until he ultimately committed suicide uh, and then was ushered straight into the judgment of God, which was probably not a great scene for him. But uh, Jehoshaphat is, by all accounts, righteous and a child of God. And so what's going to happen to him? Well, because hey, it worked. Ha-ha! We, found, we figured it out. All right, good deal. Uh, because of his unholy alliance with Ahab, the Lord sent him word through Jehu the seer. Following Jehu's words of condemnation, Jehoshaphat repents for not listening to Micah. Jehoshaphat was the one that got Micah to begin with and is the one, also the one that ignored Micah's uh, count, uh, counsel. And he repents of it and begins doing the religious reform that he had uh, had set out to do initially. And so let's look at 2 Chronicles 19, 1 through 11. Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, returned in safety to his house in Jerusalem. But Jehu, the son of Hanani, the seer, went out to meet him and said to King, King Jehoshaphat, should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord? Because of this, wrath has gone out against you from the Lord. Nevertheless, some good is found in you, for you destroyed the Ashtaroth out of the land and have set your heart to seek God. Jehoshaphat lived at Jerusalem, and he went out again among the people from Beersheba to the hill country of Ephraim and brought, brought them back to the Lord, to the God of their fathers. He appointed judges in all the land, in all, for, all the forfeited city, fortified cities uh, of Judah, city by city, and said to the judges, Consider what you do, for you judge not for man, but for the Lord. He is with you in giving judgment. Now then, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be careful what you do, for there is no injustice with the Lord our God, or partiality, or taking bribes. Moreover, in Jerusalem, Jehoshaphat appointed certain Levites and priests and heads of families in Israel to give judgment for the Lord and to decide disputed cases. They had their seat at Jerusalem, and he charged them, Thus you shall do in the fear of the Lord, in faithfulness and with your whole heart. Whenever a case comes to you from your brothers who live in their cities concerning bloodshed, law or commandment, statutes or rules, then you shall warn them that they may not, they may not incur guilt before the Lord and wrath may not come upon you and your brothers. Thus you shall do and you will not incur guilt. And behold, Amariah, the chief of priests, is over you in all matters of the Lord. And Zebediah, the son of Ishmael, the governor of the house of Judah, in all the king's matters, and the Levites will serve you as officers. Deal courageously, and may the Lord be with you, with with the upright. So it seems like in the midst of his sin, God has not only brought about a correction in him, but he has also helped him to understand his mistake and realize what a grievous sin it is for the king to go after idols and to go after influences of the north let's say and pagans and instead uh should follow the lord so it seems as though all of this has actually been for the good of jehoshaphat and for the good of the kingdom of judah and how refreshing it is to hear the king of judah after all that we've read for the past book in first kings to hear the king of judah actually saying these words to the people that we should worship the Lord and we should fear him and we should make our rulings uh, in in accordance with him. So what did Jehoshaphat do? Well, in addition to uh, all of that, he made great uh, achievements in public works and commerce. He outfitted a convoy of ships at Ezion-Geber as Solomon had done, but 
because Ahaziah of Israel, so now we flashed forward in Jehoshaphat's reign to that little period of time after Ahab has died, where Ahaziah, Ahab's son, is on the throne. Uh, uh, he makes an alliance with him, not for war, but for the building of ships. So he, he says, well, maybe uh, you know, Ahab's son is a little bit more righteous than Ahab. And so potentially this is going to be good for us. So they make this alliance to build this army of ships, or this navy, I should say, of ships. And, uh, and all the ships sink, basically. <laughs> they never make it out to sea. And the reason is because he's made an alliance with Ahaziah. And so uh, he, out, he does all this, and his project with him fails, and it's broken up before they ever got out to sea because of this alliance. I want to I want to show you this just in 1 Kings 22:48. Jehoshaphat made ships of Tarshish. You've heard of Tarshish before. To go to Ophir for gold, but they did not go for the ships were wrecked at Ezion Geber. And then 2 Chronicles 20:37 tells us then Eleazar the son of Dodavahu of Marashah prophesied against Jehoshaphat saying because you have joined with Ahaziah the Lord will destroy what you have made. And the ships were wrecked and were not able to go to Tarshish. So, Jehoshaphat's son, this is why I include a list on the back of this packet and will for a long time. Because Jehoshaphat's son, Jehoram, reigned over Judah after his death. Now, hold on to that name. I had you write it in the blank for a reason. Uh, you're going to have to write it twice. But Jehoshaphat's son, Jehoram reigned over Judah after his death, and Jehoram was like Ahab and the kings of Israel, for his wife was Athaliah. All right, now who is Athaliah? She's the daughter of Ahab. So Jehoshaphat has a son and decides that the best thing to do is to create an, a marriage alliance with Ahab. So for as righteous as Jehoshaphat was, for as corrected as he was for going into battle with Ahab against Assyria and Damascus, he is so foolish as to give his son to the daughter of the king of the north. And so he creates this marriage alliance. And we can see this in Second uh, Chronicles 18.1, uh, Jehoshaphat had great riches and honor, and he made a marriage alliance with Ahab. Um, and then in Second Chronicles 21.1-7, Jehoshaphat slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David, and Jeho Je Jehoram, his son, reigned in his place. All right, now um, we won't go much further into that, but um, in, so we're, we, we've, that's the south. That's what's going on to the south during Ahab's reign. Now let's go back up to the north and let's look at the successor to Ahab. Ahab's dead. His son comes onto the throne. Remember, how was the prophecy supposed to go? In the day of your son, kingdom will be torn away, right? There is a question always, anytime there's a prophecy made, and, and you should track this down anytime you're reading in the Old Testament, Anytime, anywhere it's said there's some sort of prophecy about what's going to happen in the future, you should always kind of put a pin in that and make note because the author is going to come back to that in just a minute. All right. So, and he does in this case as well. But there's always the question is the Lord going to be faithful to his word? Is he actually going to fulfill his promise? So here is Ahab's son. Hey, his reign's supposed to end. This is supposed to bring about the judgment of the Lord. And so in the north, Ahaziah occupies the throne of Ahab, who had recently been killed by the, the Arameans. Now, the evil son followed his mother and father in all their wickedness, and his reign was short because the doofus fell through, a lat through latticework on the second floor and was injured. And so he just, we had a, we, we were placing a, a, that's probably, I shouldn't say that, but we shouldn't say the word doofus, but we were placing a, a water heater in our in our attic, and my wife is downstairs, and all of a sudden she hears, ah, uh, oh no, <laughs> the plumber's foot came right through the, the, the our ceiling, and they had to repair it. So similar thing happens to Ahaziah. He's replacing a water heater in his, in his, in his attic, 
he steps on the sheetrock and falls right through. And he's hurt. And so he's going to reach out to somebody for help. In those days, it wasn't just a, you didn't really just call the doctors. You really needed to figure out what was going to happen. And so you wanted to call the prophets, the prophets and the priests. All right. Those could intercede before the Lord for you. And they could, uh, they could potentially save you or at least tell you what's going to happen. So they didn't worship uh, they didn't worship God in the north. They worshiped Baal. And so he sent his servants to the city of Ekron. Where's the city of Ekron? Do you remember the city of Ekron? You've heard that city before? Ashdod, Ashkelon, Ekron, Ashdod. Remember these, these cities? What are the, there's five prominent cities. What's that? The cities of the Philistines. Exactly. So in the city of the Philistines, which there's irony loaded there. What's a king of Israel doing reaching out to the area of the Philistines and to their gods? Back in the days of even Saul, they sent the Ark of the Covenant into, uh, into Ashdod, into, into Ekron, and all the people got boils and all this kind of stuff, and they sent the Ark of the Covenant back, remember? And so... Uh, and now here is the king of Israel reaching out to Ekron for their counsel. And so they went to inquire of their god, Baalzebub. You've heard this name before? I think you have heard this name before. Baalzebub, which technically means Lord of the Flies. All right, which we're going to talk about in just a second. But, and he, he reaches out to them to see whether or not he is going to recover. But along the way, they meet Elijah. Elijah is the great antagonist of everyone in the north, right? Anyone that is evil, Elijah is kind of the thorn in their side. And the, the king Ahaziah knows it. And so along the way, his people meet uh, Elijah. Elijah doesn't really identify himself. He tells them what's going to happen. He's not going to live. He's going to die. And so they come back to the king, and they say, well, we're back. And he says, why are you back so quickly? And we pick this up just a few verses in, uh, 2 Kings 3, 18. I, I don't have the verse markers here, so it says, uh, the messengers returned to the king, and he said to them, what verse is that? Yeah. The messengers, it's in 1 Kings 3, uh, 1, 3 to 18. The messengers returned to the king, and he said to them, why have you returned? Everybody found that part of it? It's right in the middle of the passage. Five. Five. All right. The messenger, verse five. The messengers returned to the king and he said to them, why have you returned? And they said, oh, there was a man. He met us and he said, go back to your king that sent you and say to him, thus says the Lord. It's because there is no God in Israel that you're sending to inquire of Baalzebub, the God of Ekron. Therefore, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. He said to them, Tell me about this man. What kind of man did you meet? Who, who, how did you come to meet this man that you were told these things? Tell me a little bit about him. Well, they said, they answered him. He wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. And he said, it's Elijah the Tishbite. I knew it. I knew it. It's Elijah the Tishbite. Then the king sent to him a captain of 50 men. You got to love this story. So the king says, look, I'm just going to tell it because we uh, rather than read it. The, he says, look, he, here's the deal. You're going to go and you're going to capture Elijah. Elijah's on top of a hill, on top of a mountain, and he sends 50 men to go after him. They're kings of the armies, right? The leaders of the armies. And the leaders of the army say, hey, man of God, come down. You're in our custody. And he says, oh, oh, really? Well, if, if I'm a man of God, then fire from the Lord come down and consume you. And sure enough, all of them are struck by lightning and consumed by fire. All right? So then he sends, uh, Ahaziah sends 50 more. And they say the same thing to him, and Elijah says the same thing to them, and they're consumed by fire. Well, the third 50 that go after Elijah are a little bit more humble, all right? As they creep up to Elijah, standing on top of the mountain, crawling over the dead bodies of all the men that were consumed by fire before, they humbly come to him and say, look, we don't want to die. Could you please, maybe, just come down with us? And the Lord says to Elijah, Go down with them. 
And so Elijah does go down with him. And all that is spoken by Elijah actually transpires uh, for the king, and he dies. Now, remember, the house of Ahab worships Baal. Now, Baal goes by many names. The one in Ekron is Baal Zebub, which is the Lord. Baal, the word Baal is mostly often translated just Lord. It can be generally translated Lord, um, but it, it is a specific entity. It is a specific person. Uh, or a specific God, as it were, but but it, it, it he he has lots of different characteristics, um, and so when they're sick, they go to Ekron, which has a notable shrine to Baal, and they seek to inquire there of these kings. Now, the name Baal shows up first in First and Second Kings. Oh, let me go back to pictures here, just so you can see. This is a these are statues from. Let's see, these are about. Uh, 12, 1300 BC that these were done. These two are in the Louvre. I'm not sure where this one is, but this is Baal as depicted on a stela and in his hand. Uh, you can't really see it here because if you're in person online, you probably can see it. There's a little uh, thunder stick or like a little uh, um, like mallet or mace in his hand up here. And then here is a, a, a like lightning that goes down into a spear at the very end, and it touches the ground. Uh, Baal is known to the Canaanites as the god of the, that rides on the clouds, the god of the thunder and lightning and rain. So Baal supplies to them, supplies the uh, fertility of the ground. And the rain comes, the, the myth of Baal is the rain comes when Baal procreates with his mistress. Okay? And so... The cultic practices that developed, you see referenced a lot in the Old Testament of them being like sexually cultic practices where they, they have sex. The, their worship was the more they have sex in the temples, it inspires Baal to have sex and create rain and all of that, right? Okay, so he brings the lightning, which, is, which brings the rain, all right. And this little guy right here, you can kind of see barely, is uh, the king. Uh, so we're, for those of you online, I'm sorry, I'm pointing my laser, but it's the left hand image on your screen. So there's Baal, which is the big one in his, I guess that's his left hand. There's a spear that goes all the way to the ground. That's a lightning bolt. And then a mace in his other hand up top above his head. Down by his knees, below his belt there, is uh, probably the king who is receiving his protection from Baal. He's like the son of God, as it were. And uh, Baal is, is sitting here on the sea and on the land at the bottom. And uh, th that is in the Louvre. That, would that was discovered in Syria in, uh, in the north. And then another one that's also in the Louvre is Baal right in the middle. And the third one also is Baal. And they're, in their hands, they're holding a lightning bolt. That's how he's typically depicted with his right hand holding a lightning bolt. And so... Um, the the name you can see uh, in the names of some of the kings. The first time it shows up in First and Second Kings is in Jezebel's dad, Ethbaal. So he's the Lord, but he's also named after his God. So you'll see a lot of times in the Old Testament when it's a Jew, often they have the name Yah, um, Elijah, uh, which is like Yahweh is kind of named after the Lord, Yahweh. And in pagan countries where they worship Baal, you'll see the name Baal in their, in their, so it's another way of saying the Lord, but it's their particular Lord. So in this case, Ethbaal, who is Jezebel's dad, she becomes a priestess of the prophet of the, of, of Baal, right? Of the God Baal. And so, um, you'll also see that in her name, Jezebel, it starts to play on this same, this same name, uh, Baal Zebul. So Jezebel, right? Is, that's part of, that's how she gets her name. Now, in, by the time the New Testament comes around, you will hear the name in Israel, Beelzebul. All right, Beelzebul is sort of a derivation or a little bit of a change. In the KJV, it'll be Beelzebub, but it's a little bit of a change to say the Lord of Dung. So it's kind of making fun of the god Baal. 
And they change his name instead of Baalzebub to Beelzebub, which is from another language, but it's borrowed and it means basically Lord of Dung. And so what they do is they take the name for Baal, they make fun of it, they turn it around and make a pun out of it, the Lord of Dung, and then they apply it to the enemy of the Christian or of the Jew, which is Satan himself. So they take the name Beelzebub, Baalzebub, turn it, which is Lord of the Flies, turn it into Beelzebub, which is Lord of Dung, and apply it to Satan. So you'll often hear him called Beelzebub, right? The Lord of Dung. Now here's another, let's go just a little bit further into this, okay? I don't want to cook your noodles or anything, but just bear with me for just a second. The word uh, Zebul uh, also had, or, and, and the word Beelzebul also is, can be the Lord of the house. And so the, you'll remember in the New Testament, the Pharisees say this in Matthew 10, 25, it is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant uh, or like his master. Oh, wait, back up. It's 12, 22 to 28. This is where it is. Um, a demon oppressed man, you know, was healed and the people are amazed that Jesus healed this demon oppressed man. And the people are saying, can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, the Lord of dung, that this man cast out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself, it itself is laid to waste. No city or house divided against itself will stand. If Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. The house is divided. How can it stand, right? Beelzebul, the king, Lord of the house. If the house is divided, how can it stand? It says, if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So the question that the, the Pharisees are asking in the New Testament of Jesus is, this guy is, is, his power is by the Lord of dung. And Jesus's turn is, no, this is actually the Lord of the house. And he is coming to bring the kingdom to you. So if it is by the Lord of the house that I actually bring the power, then the kingdom has come upon you and you must answer questions. You have to respond to it. So uh, it's, it's, it's kind of a, a little bit of a play based on history that they're kind of going into this. But um, that's so so Baal is who they worship and uh that's kind of what he does he's sort of the rider on the clouds by the way Jesus is going to later claim to be the cloud rider uh in from Daniel so we'll see that in our sermons and on Sunday as we get to Matthew 24 and 26 and all those um the Pharisees who challenge Jesus in effect claim the high prophetic ground of Elijah they're charging Jesus with the sin of Ahaziah, the king who consorts idols, uh, by saying that he is, it's by the power of Beelzebub. So Jesus is, in their thinking, the upstart blasphemer with a new teaching in Israel. Is there no God in Israel that you should be casting out demons in the name of Beelzebub? And Jesus's turn on them is, no, if, if it's, that, that, that won't work. But if it is by the power of God that I'm casting out demons, then the kingdom is upon you. Um, so the question then is, how is God's prophecy through Elijah going to be fulfilled? Fulfilled, And um, so Ahaziah's rule comes to an end, and he doesn't have any children, but he does have a brother, and his brother ends up taking over the throne. And so it's unexpected. The house is going to be destroyed in the days of Ahab's son. Ahab's house is going to come to ruin in the days of Ahab's son. But it wasn't Ahaziah. It is actually Jehoram, Ahab's son. Have you heard the name Jehoram before? Yeah. He's also the king of Judah. So there's a king of Judah named Jehoram. And at the same time, there's a king of Israel named Jehoram. Shouldn't be confusing at all. You will see them as Jehoram, and sometimes you will see them as Joram, but they'll both be called basically the same name. They rule at about the same times. And so it can get very, very confusing. So we have to keep them straight. Jehoram South, Jehoram North, 
all right? Same name. But the point is that it's going to be in the days of Jehoram that Ahab's uh, kingdom comes to an end and thus fulfills Elijah's prophecy. So we see not only is the Lord good according to his word, but that he's also going to bring about Christ who is going to um, ultimately be the Lord of the house. Questions? Oh, I don't think I went to the next slide. I'm sorry. Meant to. You can end the slide share, maybe, Jehoram. I think there we go. Perfect. Got it. Got the people up. All right. Any questions? Go ahead, Heather. Um, man, so Heather asked the question, why does he, he makes these bold statements, um, follow the Lord, fear the Lord, and then he does these really boneheaded things. Um, well, it's a good question, and I don't, I don't know that we really know the answer to it. I, I can say some, some general principles that come back time and time again in the Old Testament um, are things like, well, when, um, first of all, the kings in Judah are never perfect they never walk that line perfectly and there's a lot of things that i think um you and i can probably relate to some of this there's things that we do and then 20 years later we go man what was i thinking and the answer seems so obvious even just maybe even months later and when you look back on it you go good grief i, I was just short-sighted and blind and hopefully maybe that's it um, but it, it could also be, and I think a lot of those things come into, a lot of the uh, temporal things come into play. So a marriage alliance between people that are supposed to be your kindred seems to be, on the surface, it has a certain logic to it. Let's say that. Uh, it might not make um, religious sense, uh, holiness sense, but it does have a certain logic to it. You can see where uniting the kingdoms together under the monarch could be could be a potentially good thing, um, you know, and so ultimately that wasn't the case, you know, and, but once you are engaged in sin, it, it, you, it, lots of things can make total sense to you, perfect sense to you, you know, when you're engaged in sin, and, and I think that's about all I can say for him, um, but he seems to at least have a heart that, you know, goes after David, and the way David did, and and David made some grievous sins too, you know, so um, they're, they're all fallen. And so it, 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 just, it just brings about really the need for a king who's not going to make those kinds of choices, you know, which we ultimately see in Christ. Yeah. Good. I have a question. Sure, Doug. So, um, Michael, how would you handicap the, from the perspective that when you think about, just think about us, and so... If we're born again, we have our hearts been regenerated. We have the spirit of God living within us and we sin. And these Old Testament kings, I mean, David had the spirit of God uh, more uh, consistently than others. I mean, they're basically trying to, uh, they're living a life, some morality, a lot of it, immorality, but they don't really have the spirit of God. They, right. they are, I think, born again to, uh, or they're not, but they... It's, they don't have the kind of tools that we have. And so right. I, how do you handicap that? Because, I mean, it's easy for us, you know, to say, well, he did these stupid things. And, but then they're subject to a lot of cultural pressure, political issues, like, uh, like maintaining the kingdom by um, marrying the daughter of an infidel and, and all these things. And so yeah. it's hard for me to kind of put that in perspective and kind of, yeah. um, I don't feel like, like I'm morally um, right. capable of judging them so much. Right. It sounds really bad what they're doing. Yeah. And it's hard to, it, it's hard to even know what that's like to not have the spirit. And you, you see that even with um, the disciples in Acts, you know, they, they're, you know, it, when Jesus appears to them uh, in the end of Matthew 
and there it says even some of them didn't believe and then after he's gone they're in the upper room in acts and they're standing around wondering what to do praying to the lord they're uh, casting lots for who's going to be the the fill-in for judas essentially the replacement for judas and it's not until the spirit comes upon them that all of a sudden they're they're they gain understanding and insight into what's been taking place Peter's able to preach a miraculous sermon there at Pentecost and the re- you know the rest is history they go out in boldness and continue to preach and it, so you kind of can see a difference between when the spirit comes and when it doesn't and even in the first second kings first and second Samuel you see it time and time again when the spirits when the spirit of the lord comes upon a person or in uh as Doug or Doug kind of alluded to but uh the spirit of uh that that went out into um Ahab to convince him or into his false prophets to lie, you know, um, and to, to convince him to go to Ramoth Gilead where he would eventually meet his demise. You know, all of that is, uh, you know, fascinating what, what happens when, when a person's under the influence of, you know, the Holy spirit in one case and, and, you know, the spirit of deception in another. So it's, um, it, it's, it's hard to put ourselves in their shoes and, and understand what that, what that's like. You know, but someone like Jehoshaphat, who seems to have the spirit of the Lord in one place, and then it's withheld from him in another, you know, uh, my plan next week is hopefully if everything goes according to plan uh, next week, we're going to look at Elijah being taken up, which will hopefully transition that night into uh, sort of how the last supper would have gone and how it would have looked. And when we do the Last Supper, we can look at Elijah's seat at the Last Supper and things like that. And I want to kind of look at how that would break down in the New Testament. So it'd be right leading up to Easter. Uh, So hopefully we'll be able to do that next week if all goes according to plan. And if it doesn't, then, well, you know, we'll reboot and go to next year, maybe. (laughs) All right, let's, uh, let's pray and then we'll get out of here. Heavenly Father, we thank you for a time to gather together and read your word and study it. We thank you for... Um, an opportunity to to talk about these things and to think about think deeply about how you have um, crafted history and brought about its conclusion in Christ and how you are still bringing about uh, its ultimate conclusion the consummation of your kingdom in Christ and we long for that day we pray uh, that you would go with us and before us help these words of yours to sink into our heart uh, as we leave may they convict us of sin and remind us of truth we pray these things in Jesus name amen Thank you, Michael. Thanks. See y'all. Bye. Thank you, Ms. Carrie.